Hi, it's Pete from HHE Podcast here. Today's episode is about Syria. Now, we don't talk about the recent earthquake in Syria in the episode, but if you are worried about the region and you want to help and you're not sure how, you can visit medicalaidsyria.com. That's medicalaidsyria.com. That's an organisation that provides medical support to the area. So that's an option if you feel you would like to help out. History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the factory line Ferrari to my car lot Chevy. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. A factory line Ferrari, is that better or worse than a handmade Ferrari? Fresh one, fresh off oh, the line. I see. Oh, I'm excellent. I'm speeding along. I'm looking forward to that. Speedy, shiny, and I'm sitting there rusting on some car forecourt. Oh, you do yourself a disservice, sir. <laughs> <laughs> So, Peter, last time the Derzalita gave us the extra mile in Syria during the Persian Empire, which was 550 to 330 BCE. So I hope you've gone above and beyond and taken this seriously. Oh, my Lord. These get worse every week. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, Ryan, that is right. Desert plains, the forests of Cypress Wood, Mediterranean coastlines. We're going to the home of one of the oldest civilizations in the world. We're going to visit part of an empire the likes of which the world had never seen before. We're going to study a satrapy. We're going to go postal on a remarkable road and we're going to follow the journey of one remarkable man and his friends who went the extra mile and then some. We're going, Ryan, to Syria. Ooh, well that sounds exciting, Peter. Uh, I understood a few of those things. <laughs> but I'm drawn in. You've you've baited me like a hungry fish. Ah, excellent. So yes, we're going to talk about the Syrian Arab Republic, Ryan. Okay. Uh, now that is found in the Levant. Have you heard of the Levant? I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, it's a region, basically, on the eastern Mediterranean coast. So if you know where Italy is and you take a turn to the east, head down there and hit to Israel, Lebanon, Syria, all of that area is so the, the Levant. So at the end of the Mediterranean? Exactly, yeah, on the, the eastern end. Okay. It's got Lebanon to the west on the coast. It's got Turkey to the north, Jordan to the south, and Iraq to the east. So Middle Eastern, square in the middle of things. Lots going on in this area. Yeah, lots going on. It's a sizable old place. 187,000 square kilometres, 33% the size of France. Wow. 22 million people. Okay. The capital is Damascus, generally agreed to be the oldest capital in the world. Now that is a cool stat. Yeah, it may even be the oldest city in the world, and there's some debate about that. But uh, I think it's reasonably accepted that it's the oldest capital in the world. Uh, has a national anthem, of course. Really? Yes. This is Humat Ad-Diyar, or Guardians of the Homeland. Here we go. That's an unexpected beginning. It was a nice little turn, wasn't it? This was adopted in 1938 after a national competition, hmm. and the music is by Muhammad Falafel. It sounds a bit like Falafel, uh, and he also composed, interestingly, the national anthem of Iraq. Sky was busy. Sound like then a job at that point? <laughs> I guess I'm an anthem writer. Yeah. <laughs> or is he just going for competitions? Is it just be after doing the prize money? <laughs> He's doing everything. <laughs> There you have it. Flag-wise, it's a tricky one, this. Syria is currently in a state of civil war, so whose flag do you want to choose of the sides in the civil war? So there's actually two flags to choose from, depending on who who you're backing in the civil war. Both of them look quite similar. They're three horizontal bars of equal size. One of them is red, white, and black from top to bottom. Uh, And in the white band, there are two green stars. The alternative is the same three horizontal bars, but green, white, and black, and three stars in the middle. So they look pretty similar. They're very variations on the brand but yes you can pick one of those depending on who you want to win in the civil war are the stars based on like google reviews <laughs> in which case you probably want the three star review yeah. for your nation yeah a warm welcome <laughs> <laughs> 
Geographically, it is very much a country of parts. It has a coastal element. It's got the Syrian coastal mountain range, which catches moist winds from the Mediterranean. That's quite a fertile area. Mm-hmm. But if you go inland, you come to the Syrian desert, which the name gives the game away. That accounts for actually over 50% of the country, which is not a sandy Saharan type of desert. It's a rocky, pebbly kind of desert. Yeah, I like moist wind. Moist wind is good for growing things and survival, really, let's face it. Yeah. It is a troubled nation, Ryan. It's been in the grip of the Syrian civil war since 2011. It's seen the attentions of Islamic State or ISIS and all the destruction and death that you might imagine comes along with that. Mm. But we'll talk a little bit about that later. Famous Syrians, though, Mustafa al-Akkad. Yeah, well famous. You you will know him by his works. He's a Syrian-American film producer and director who produced the original Halloween film. No way! (laughs) Really? Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. Here's another one Uh, you may have heard of, St. Peter. Uh, Yeah, I've heard of him. (laughs) Yeah. The gatekeeper Wait, of heaven. He's the gatekeeper of heaven. The gatekeeper yeah. of heaven. He was born in an area called the Golan Heights, which is part of Syria, but is controlled by Israel. And also, here's a chap I liked, not particularly famous, but I discovered him and I liked him very much. Abdul al Allah al Mari. I'll describe what he does and you guess when he was alive. Okay. He was a philosopher, poet, and author. He was a rationalist, controversial, who attacked religious dogmas, mocking the faiths of Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. He supported animal rights and he was a vegan. Animal rights. Okay. Up until the point where you said, animal rights and vegan i was thinking like jesus times but now i'm thinking 1970 973 ce to 1057 ce oh wow this was a man who was ahead of his time yeah really <laughs> i'm not sure what his opinion was on gender stereotypes but uh he seemed to be ahead of the game in animal rights and veganism and uh i'm not sure he was an atheist per se but he was certainly a rationalist so bean burger for you <laughs> now ryan yes Peter. as ever we do like to sample a bit of food of drink of the region. That's the tradition. But I am curiously going to give you something from South America. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't find anything this time? No, no, not at all. I was on the subreddit of Syria saying, what sort of things should we try? And one of the person said, we really like yerba mate tea. Yerba mate tea. This is a a tea that's actually from Argentina and Brazil largely, uh, mostly Argentina, I think. But the Syrians and the neighbouring Lebanese are big fans of this kind of tea. Right. Syria is the biggest importer of it in the world. In 2017, they imported 22,000 tonnes of it. That's a lot of tonnes. Yeah. So you're probably wondering, why? (laughs) Well, yeah, uh, yeah. So basically from 1860 or thereabouts all the way through World War II, there was a lot of upheaval in the area and a lot of Syrians headed to South America as people do when they're fleeing difficult situations. They get to South America, cultures mix as they do. uh, And then in the 1970s, you have a lot of turbulence in South America. Mm. But meanwhile, back in the Middle East, the oil situation and the boom means that the Middle East starts getting richer and richer so a lot of those people came back home oh wow okay and they bring with them a taste for this south american yerba mate tea Syria and Lebanon have their own specific traditions of how exactly to do it. You lay things out on a tray and there's kind of an order of things. Yeah. But the basics are the same. You have yerba mate tea, which is kind of a green leaf tea. You serve it in a small pot. Some use a kind of gourd. Uh, in Syria, I think they they seem to be used, used a kind of little milk jug almost. And the other thing that's interesting about it is instead of having a filter or straining the tea as we would do or having a bag, mm. you put all this stuff in your one cup and you drink it through a kind of filtery straw. No way. Yeah, so I've got one here. Have a little look at that. Okay. Okay. What you're All right. So, so this is in South America called a bombilla, and in Syria it's called a masasa. Oh, look at that. Yeah, okay. The tiniest little sieve on a teaspoon, basically. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? It looks like one of the miniature version of that game where you... Lacrosse. Lacrosse, where you catch the ball and you... Exactly, it's like a tiny lacrosse stick with a filter. So we I love this. This is great. What a lovely little design. So how we do it, you put uh, the leaves in a cup. Yeah. Pour hot but not boiling water in the cup. Okay. You stir it, add some sugar. Yeah. Uh, you pop your straw in and you drink it. And the way it's normally done, we're not going to do it this way, is you would pass it round from person to person, yeah. wiping the straw with lemon to clean it as you go. Wiping it with lemon, that's neat. Yeah, and apparently some areas in South America, you don't do that. It's kind of rude and you just share the straw. Right. But in Syria, you wipe it with lemon and... Uh, uh, but we're not going to do that because that's a little bit awkward okay. because we're recording. We're just going to have a couple of cups and uh, I've got a couple of straws and we'll give it a go. I love this. This is great. I'm All right. excited to try. Let me make you some tea, Ryan. Oh, but that's so delightful. I do want to ask though, is is there a reason why this is so popular? Is it the taste? Is it the amount of caffeine? Uh, no, it's, I read once in one place that it was the stimulant of coffee, the refreshingness mm. of tea and the excitement of coffee. So it's not like crack cocaine, but it's a tasty beverage that like all of these caffeinated drinks. I assume it has caffeine in. Okay. Uh, it gives you a bit of a boost and it's yummy. And while you drink it, apparently you leave the tea leaves in and you keep topping it up with hot water as uh. you go. Uh, but let's give it a go. 
So I discovered a thing, Peter. What was that? If I take my masasa and I put it in my water and blow... <laughs> it creates even more bubbles. I knew I shouldn't have trusted you with that. Okay, so I'm going to stir this. Uh, I have a little ceramic pot. It's chock full of leaves. Yeah, they say to put a third, like a third of the cup is leaves. Right. Yeah, you end up with a kind of a swampy look. It does. <laughs> I was just thinking, like a little wintry walk through the woods. Okay, I'm going to give that a try. Give it a go. Okay, here we go. Jesus Christ, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, that was hot. You can't blow on it through a straw. Otherwise, it'll end up in my lap. <laughs> you hear that i heard i think there's a hole in my <laughs> might be straw. A hole in your straw oh no <laughs> i've got your faulty straw <laughs> <laughs> nothing's coming through my straw all right i'm gonna let straw. that i'm gonna let it cool that down a little bit it's too hot for me while you are drinking that though ryan i didn't want you to go hungry so i also bought you something to eat yay now what we have here is a thing called marmul now this is not specifically syrian it's popular across the middle east okay so it's a nice pastry with a date and nut kind yeah. of center there's different kinds you can get as ever with these things and to be clear i do not know what's on the inside of these ones i just went to the shop and picked out the thing that said marmul <laughs> okay well everyone loves them so let's try them here we go oh okay that's nice it is nice it's mm. dry like the pastry turns to crumbs well good news got some nice tea to go with it mm. I feel like I'm getting a little flavour of Syria here. This is good. Exactly. I'm easing you into it. Mm. I just love the straw. It's great, isn't it? Can I keep the straw? Yeah, absolutely. I was. Um, we'll put a picture on Twitter and uh, Instagram if you want to have a look at it. I'm going to use it in the bath. <laughs> Not to drink the bath water, but to make more bubbles. Oh, I see. Yes. Well, uh, uh, you, you do you, right? <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> so there you have it. Mamul biscuit and yoba mate tea. Very nice. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Oh, you seem tired. What have you been up to? Oh, well, I just got back from a walk. Oh, that sounds nice. So any reason? Well, you know, we've been working together for a long time now. A long time, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, do I really know you? Sure you do. But do I? Sure you do. Well, they say to know a man, you should walk a mile in his shoes. So that's what I did. You mean you literally stole my shoes and wore them around, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. Right, but your feet are enormous. They'd never fit in my shoes. Yeah, that was a problem. So I just crammed them in in the end. Oh, come on, Ryan. Well, did it work at least? No. No, it did not. Right. So I decided to walk another mile and see if that worked. Okay. But that didn't work either. So I walked 10 miles. 10 miles? Yeah, but I still didn't feel like I knew you any better. So I kept on walking and walking and walking and walking. Ryan, and how far did you walk? 360 miles. What? That must have been exhausting. Yeah, I'm knackered. But it did work, though. Oh, really? Well, what did you learn about me then? Well, I learned that you need a new pair of shoes because these ones are ruined. Ryan, you're an idiot. So, Ryan, before we begin, I kind of want to get you oriented in time. And mm -hmm. there's a relatively easy way to do that. So the, the Persian Empire was this massive empire, but it was also at the same time, the burgeoning of democracy in Athens and the Spartans were uh, a, a force at the same time. So this is Sparta. This is Sparta. I'm glad you said that because you may be familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae. Yeah. You don't realise <laughs> you're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae, but if okay. I told you the film 300, where the 300 Spartans oh, yeah. held off the giant persian army yeah so that was the army of the persian empire so this is this is that time period leather, this, leather thongs and bronze helmets and spears and it, stuff exactly this is that time so a lot of what we know about the persian empire comes from a few greek writers mm. but they of course tend to frame it as we were battling this terrible empire from the east mm. um whereas from the persian point of view it was probably a bit more oh there's a bit of a scuffle on our border over there yeah what of it right okay um, but yeah the time period we're talking about is the battle of marathon mm -hmm. we're talking extra miles the battle of <laughs> thermopylae which is your spartans yeah. and uh, after that there was a battle called salamis which is a naval battle uh, in which the greeks actually overcame the forces of the persian empire so that's the period that we're talking about today okay so this is 550 to 330 bce right exactly thinking togas greeks philosophers agoras spartans going ah this is sparta javelins and big shields i'm oriented okay ryan i want to teach you some history i'm going to start you in 10,000 bce Syria 
area was one of the centres of Neolithic culture. The culture is known as pre-pottery Neolithic A, which I think a. is a, a. <laughs> okay. shows a bit of lack of imagination on the part of archaeologists, but fine. And from there, loads of stuff happens. Like normally I'll try and give you a good tour of the country, but this is an area that's been inhabited continuously and reasonably recordedly since the beginning of civilization. I was going to say, there should be this, this section should be stacked full of history. This is where it starts, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates are not too far down the road, mm. generally regarded as the beginning, the cradle of civilization, as they say. The Euphrates runs through Syria. Wow. Okay. And there's literally thousands of years of various arrivals and conquerings. Syrian cities like Aleppo and Damascus have been continuously inhabited for centuries, for thousands of years, in fact. So I'd be here all day, basically, going through all the people who came through. So I've kind of picked out a few of the interesting ones. Okay. So the earliest recording indigenous civilization in the region was the Kingdom of Ebla in northern Syria, about 3,500 BCE. Are they early man? I think that early man's a bit earlier than that. This is modern-ish man. I kind of bypassed early man because I had so much to do here. Okay. But these guys made a pretty good living trading with Sumerians, Assyrians and Akkadians. Eventually the area gets absorbed into the Akkadian Empire. That's about 2300 BCE. 2100 BCE, the Amorites come in and they thrived. Probably uh, the Amorongs uh, did not. (laughs) (laughs) There's general rumblings of lots of people knocking about the area. Hittites, the Mitanni Empire, Egyptians, Middle Assyrians, Babylonians, all these biblically people from from, uh, your Sunday school, if you will. Uh, inland, a group of tribes known as the Arameans gain control, and the area becomes known as Arameo or Aram. Oh, is that where the the language comes from? Aramaic. Oh, we'll talk about Aramaic actually in a minute. Okay. But yes, I believe so. Nine hundred BCE, the area becomes part of the Neo Assyrian Empire. They name the area Eber Nari, which means across the water. The water being the Euphrates, I assume. They introduce Imperial Aramaic as the language of government and getting yeah, okay. things done. It must have been a good language then, right? It was certainly common, which is the main thing yeah. you want in a language that crosses a lot of area. Oh, yeah. And that takes us to Neo-Babylonian Empire, which gets us to 539 BCE. And that, Ryan, is the first period of antiquity. Not even all of antiquity. That's just the first period. Gosh, there's a lot of history. Exactly. That was ancient antiquity. Now we're on to classical antiquity. Mm. Uh, that starts with our period, actually, the Persian Empire. Oh. 539 BCE, Cyrus the Great, the boss of the Persian Empire, shows up and he nicks the area of Syria for what is known as the Achaemenid Empire. Mm-hmm. This empire, which is our period, lasts about 200 years. Um, which doesn't sound very much because people talk about the Persian Empire as being like a big deal, which obviously it is. But it's such a short period of time, really. Relatively short, but very significant, I think it's fair to say. Mm. And it's partly because of the conflict with Greece that means we think of it perhaps even more than it, than it merits. But in 330 BCE, it becomes Koli Syria. I'm not how to, sure how to pronounce this, and I couldn't find a guide online. But part of the Greek Seleucid Empire, which introduces the name Syria to the region. It starts to be known as Syria. Uh, okay. uh, I'm going to accelerate now because a lot happens. Right. Okay, Armenians move in, Romans take over, Romans become Byzantines. Syria is well an important province for all of these, really. It's having a good time. In Christianity news, the Apostle Paul, possibly one of your favourite apostles, I don't know, mm-hmm. he took a trip to Damascus and was converted on the road, famously. The original road to Damascus moment Mm. Uh, in islamic news in 626 the prophet muhammad ordered an invasion of the area uh, and that starts the islamic expansion and in fact around 650 ce damascus was declared the capital of the islamic empire known as the umayyad this is when arabic starts to overtake aramaic as the language of getting things done 706 ce the grand mosque of damascus is built then crusades christians knights battles 1100 ce bits of the area are held by christians known as the crusader states particularly the principality of antioch which is in syria antioch where have i heard that from before the holy hand grenade of antioch that's the one (laughs) that's the one i was thinking of monty python yeah (laughs) sketch Uh, and against the christians you have saladin 1300 mongols show up they take over 14th century tamerlane the great arrives wait 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 this is crazy everyone's just everyone has a a piece (laughs) wow mongols turn up as well yeah it's in the middle really so everyone gets to sort of cruise over when they're feeling powerful 1516 eyes turn to the west from the east so 14th century tamerlane the greats come from the central asian plains uh, and then the ottoman empire comes along they make themselves felt and they actually stay in charge give or take all the way out to world war one so that's from 1516 to world war one we know the ottomans last a long long time we've mm. talked about them before but world war one the ottomans find themselves on the wrong side and very much lose the war uh, and as a result of the sykes pico agreement of 1916 that divided the whole area into british and french spheres of influence uh, and in regards to syria the french take over almost immediately <laughs> there is a revolt against the french uh, 1925 what is known as the Great Syrian Revolt happens. Uh By 1930, 
1936, Syria and France negotiate a treaty of independence. Never quite gets fully underway because World War II then breaks out and a bunch of British and free French soldiers arrive in the area. Uh, the war ends with the French grudgingly leaving and a Syrian republic is in place. Wow, okay. That wasn't really a stable government. In 1958, Syria actually joined to become one country with Egypt, briefly known as the United Arab Republic. That only lasted a few years. In 1963, the Arab socialist Ba'ath Party, which you may have heard of, staged a coup known as the Ba'ath Revolution. 1967, there was a six-day war with Israel. This ends with Israel controlling the Golan Heights, an area that's still disputed to this day. 1970, Hafez al-Assad, that's a name you may have heard, overthrew the leader of the time and he became president and he remains in power for 30 years. It's a long time. You can have a rough guess as to how democratic that was until he died in 2000 and his son, Bashar al-Assad, who I'm sure you've heard of, became president. Mm. Uh, Side note, the Bashar al-Assad presidency required a change to the constitution because he was only 34 and you're supposed to be over 40 to take the job. So things were changed for the Mm. son of the president. Well, well, well. What a surprise. (laughs) So there was some hope that Bashar would be less oppressive than his father, especially after the Arab Spring, if you recall, protests in Egypt and Tunisia, particularly in the 2010s. That hope was unfounded, unfortunately. Uh, And then in 2011, rebels formed the Free Syrian Army. By 2012, Syria is in a full-on civil war. Right. They want him out. They want him out. Now it gets even more complicated because originally it's Free Syrians versus the government. Then Islamic State come along. So then ISIS joined the fight. They briefly control chunks of Syria as well. So which side are they on? They're on their own side. They're trying to create their own Islamic State. So they're just against everyone as, Mm. (laughs) as they have tended to be. The United States have said that they opposed the Assad regime. Russia and Iran on the other side support the Assad regime. Nobody supports the Islamic State. So consequently, actually, Islamic State kind of disappears. They don't really hold any territory now like they used to, but they are still kind of there as a sort of insurgency, terroristy type of threat. Didn't they destroy a whole bunch of antiquities there? Yes, they definitely did. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, so now we're left with the two sides. It's been going 11 years. The war is still going technically. It's kind of settled down. It's not active fighting so much right now. But it seems that, and this is from light reading, so I wouldn't read too much into it. This seems that Assad has the upper hand, but it's not finishing finishing, which is good news in that there's no active fighting. Things aren't blowing up like they were. But bad news because that means reconstruction isn't really happening because we haven't had a line drawn under the event as yet. Ongoing war has unsurprisingly been a massive disaster for the nation, as you may imagine. And as of uh, it is the people who pay the price. Mm. Since 2017, around 11 million Syrians have been displaced from their homes. That's half of the entire population can't live at home. So where are they now? Well, 5.6 million fled the country completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest, I assume, are just displaced, living in camps, living where they can, rather than staying where they were in their houses. That's uh, a lot of people. That's a huge amount of people and more than 90% of the population is living under poverty and I think it's safe to say that is a direct result of the more than a decade of civil war that they've undergone and experienced. Wow. Still, the, the active fighting is an end, as at an end, and that's something. And I can only hope that the conflict can be brought to an end. Mm-hmm. Reconstruction can begin and this great country can actually recover and become the great country it has the potential to be. But that, sir, is a whistle stop, a very much whistle stop, history of Syria. Wow, what a what a roller coaster. That was a lot, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm drinking my tea and it's going down nicely. That's all right. Now it's the right temperature. I can sup on this easily. I'm treating it like a pipe. It it does look like you're smoking like Gandalf over there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Ryan, we're here to talk the extra mile. Yeah, it's a saying, isn't it? It is a saying. And according to the first result I got on Google, the extra mile is, and I quote, an insider's guide to alternative and delicious places to stop just off motorways and main roads. Wow, that makes this hard for you. It's available for £13.75 on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) I googled again, as you can imagine. (laughs) It's, of course, as you say, it's a saying, and it means really to do more than is expected or required. Mm. So give me an example of how I would would say it. You say, ah, he... He, oh, the guy was going to deliver the food. Mm. This car broke down, but he really went the extra mile and he walked for the, for the final stretch and brought us his stuff anyway instead of giving up. Okay. All right. Going over and above, extra effort, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, it sounds on the face of it, and it generally is today, a kind of a do-your-best message. Mm. But it originates slightly differently, actually. It comes from one Mr. Jesus Christ. Not heard of him. 
Uh, you should look him up. He's yeah? uh, quite a character. Okay. He said it during the Sermon on the Mount. Right. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. He said, five. go the extra mile. Yeah, yeah. So here it goes. <laughs> this is the King James Bible version. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Or more modernly, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him for two miles. Okay. Why? Why? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked that, right? Yeah. <laughs> why, firstly, why would anyone compel you to go a mile? Yeah. I mean, come um, on, Jesus. <laughs> just walked a mile. Don't make me walk two. Well, here's the thing. It, it's believed that this actually refers to a thing called the Roman Impressment Law, where a Roman soldier could order any non-Roman citizen to carry his stuff for him. What? For a thousand paces, or mille passus, or basically a mile. So I'm a soldier. My pack's heavy. I go, oh, you, carry that. For but real? But you can only ask for them to do it for one mile. But then from Jesus's <laughs> point of view, that's terrible, it's bad, isn't it? <laughs> but what Jesus was saying was don't grudgingly trudge one mile, take it two, go do more. It's kind of like almost a turn the other cheek message. So it's not just do your best. It's when someone is oppressing you, don't see it as a punishment, don't rile against it, but kill them right. with kindness, do more than they ask. Yeah. Okay. So even if it puts you out personally, it's still worth it to help your fellow man. Yeah. It's kind of related to, I mean, you may have heard the expression gives unto Caesar his due, where the, the questions were asked, like, how do I rebel? The, the, the question was, how do we rebel against the Roman temporal authority? Yeah. And Jesus's thing was, turn don't, when you're getting beaten, turn the other cheek. Don't fight back. If you are ordered to go one mile, go two miles. It's almost Gandhi-esque passive resistance, where yeah, you don't let resistance. them bother you, and you return hostility with kindness. Mm. Anyway, so that's the actual origin of it. Nowadays, going the extra mile just means, oh, he did a really good job, and he really made the effort not just doing the minimum it's you know, really going for it but of course for my purposes of course is as well as going as well as going the extra mile in a metaphorical sense there are literal miles so um what i'm going to be talking about are things that are both metaphorically going the extra mile but also literally things relating to distance is there one for those people who don't have miles well funny you should say that because i was about to say instead of mile we should perhaps say the extra parasang <laughs> yeah i was thinking kilometer but parasang <laughs> is fine well this parasang is a distance mentioned in the ancient text that refer to the period that we're talking about, particularly a historian known as Xenophon, who we're going to meet a little bit Xenophon. later. Xenophon. Xenophon, yeah. And the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who gives us a lot of the stuff we know about the Persian Empire particularly, said a parasang was, and this will clear it up for you, about 30 stadia. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Um, it's depending on, I've seen a couple of versions, somewhere between two and three miles is a parasang. It's funny, isn't it, how these things drop off and don't continue in use. Yeah, we could be doing a 10 parasang race. Yeah. <laughs> but there we go so uh again parasang is not an exact measure as they weren't in those times because it was like how many feet or paces they're not measured out exactly so you might say your mileage may vary ah nice i would walk five thousand parasangs <laughs> and thus concludes my sermon upon the mount before we finish are there any questions yes okay yes the old gentleman in the back yeah uh Hello, Mr. Nazareth. Um, I just wonder if you can help me. Certainly, my friend. Well, I was walking along the road the other day, and some Roman, right, he says to me, Oi, carry my bags. A whole mile he made me take them. Ah, yes, the impressment law. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What can I do to stop doing it again? Well, I shall advise unto you that if anyone asks you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Really? Yea, I say unto thee, go more, and further upon that journey, thou ought to gift your companion a delicious meal, including a starter and a dessert, perhaps, even a cheese board. What? And yea, upon completion of thine journey, do not expect payment. In fact, give unto them the reward, for surely ten coins would purchase them a nice drink at the inn. I don't get it. It's about kindness, you know, compassion. Uh, uh, okay. Well, that's all we have time for. So why don't we put into practice what we've learned today? So you, sir, help me with my bags to my hotel. It's only one mile away. Okay, Ryan, let's talk about Syria in the Persian Empire. I'm Finally! I'm homing in on this. Good degree. God. Uh, well, I'm going to start with the bad news. <laughs> okay. I contacted an expert on the subject of the Persian Empire, mm. and I told them that the Dursleiter gave us Syria during the Persian Empire, and their response, and I quote, is yeah. this. I'm cracking up laughing. There are very few parts of the Persian Empire that could have dealt you a more poorly documented and obscure topic. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. So... 
That's the bad news. <laughs> but the good news, yeah. my expert nonetheless agreed to talk to me. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So let's meet him. Hello, I am Trevor Cully. I am the host of the History of Persia podcast, which is basically what it says on the tip. I am covering the history of the empires based in ancient Iran from roughly 700 BC to 700 CE with the requisite amount of introduction and debrief at either end. And so far, I'm up to just about 350 BC at time of recording. So that's Trevor. He's my expert. I've imported to help me out with this tricky conundrum. He does have a podcast worth checking out if you find this episode interesting. He goes into much more detail and is much more uh, of a proper historian uh, and a lot less in the way of sketches. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you want some real history about the Persian Empire, it's a very thorough and entertaining podcast. Okay, I'll check it out. So obviously the first thing I asked Trevor was, why don't we know anything, Trevor? <laughs> what, what went wrong? Uh, and he explained to me. We know a lot about Syria before and after its time in the Persian Empire, or more accurately, the first Persian Empire, which we usually call the Achaemenid Persians, named for the ruling dynasty. The before period is fairly heavily documented through the Bible and through ancient Egypt. Of course, ancient Egypt uh, at its height had an empire that expanded into the northeast or northwestern parts of modern Syria, and it's right there next to ancient Judea. So it got a lot of press in portions of the Bible that discuss the kind of history of that period. But then part of what's discussed in the Bible is the involvement of the major Aramaic kingdom based in Syria at the time, which was called Aram Damascus, based in, you could probably guess, Damascus, leading some of the major revolts against the Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian empires. And because these ancient Syrian city-states were fighting against these massive empires of the time, they got stomped into the ground, basically. And, and in the period after the Persian Empire, you have the successors of Alexander the Great, uh, specifically the Seleucid Empire, and they shift their capital to a brand new city called Antioch, which is right in the middle of modern Syria, and are actually sometimes called the Syrian Empire because of how heavily they focused on that region. But in that in-between period where you've got the Persians, the Persians didn't do much with it. They put a treasury in Damascus, and that's just about it. And this coincides with a big shift in record keeping. Up to this point, the major powers of the ancient Middle East wrote everything down in wedges and lines called cuneiform on clay tablets. And the wonderful thing about clay is that when you heat it up, it bakes hard as a rock and lasts basically forever as long as you don't smash it. The Persians presided over the period of time where that language system was changing and the Aramaic language was becoming a kind of lingua franca for trade and politics in the region. And Aramaic was written in an alphabet. And so it was written originally on papyrus sheets you know, that read that everything was written on in ancient Egypt and eventually adapted to things like leather and early forms of parchment. But those famously decay. They're, you know, plant and animal materials. So over time, they get lost if people aren't making copies. And, you know, there's no grand works of literature that we hear about from Syria at this time that people wanted to make copies of. And nobody really cares about making copies of bank documents from 100 years ago. So over time, these pieces of paper just rotted away, and we don't have any of that information left. Wow. I tell you what, Pete, it sounds like we're almost like a history podcast. I know it does. I, I've, I've discovered the secret is to import a historian from a different podcast, and then you become much more like a history podcast. <laughs> wow. Also, side note, um, cuneiform? I know. I thought it was cuneiform. Cuneiform, yeah. yeah. We're we all learning things We today, don't know Ryan. nothing. <laughs> so, also, who's he to say about my bank statement collection yeah, from 100 years, years ago? ago. <laughs> So, yeah, I've been stuffed. I thought I did well by getting Syria in the Persian Empire because it was in the Persian Empire. But no, it turned out to be something of a backwater where no one really cared. Uh, but nevertheless, I, th I thought, well, surely there must have been a battle or something to make it become part of the Persian era. Surely something. How did it even become part of this empire? And why, why don't we know about the massive battle that must have taken place? So I asked him, how did Syria become part of the Persian Empire? Well, what did he say? He said this. Syria, they basically just inherited it. 
King Cyrus the Great had been on a conquering spree for almost 20 years at that point. He started off as just a little tiny vassal king who was subservient to a power in northwestern Iran called the Medes. And he went into rebellion, usurped his maternal grandfather's throne, and then used that position after he took control of the Median Empire to start conquering everything in arm's reach. He consolidated power, and then if you shared a border with the area he consolidated power in, he was coming for you. And the sort of crowning jewel of that after a few decades of conquest was Babylon. There was one major battle in the lead up to it, maybe a couple of smaller things. And then the city of Babylon threw open its gates without a fight because the king at the time was really unpopular and Cyrus was just such an obvious, unstoppable force that the Babylonians just gave up. And when they gave up, they gave up everything they owned already too, which included Syria at that point. So Cyrus turned up and started to spread around and take up all the land, right? Yeah. Like a virus. Very much like Cyrus the virus, indeed. Yeah. But yeah, he took Babylon and essentially Syria came as part of the fixtures and fittings. (laughs) He just went, oh, this is mine now. It didn't even have to go there. Just came with the job lot of Babylonian territory. Yeah. So then I thought, well, okay, so now I'm Assyrian. Wait. You're Assyrian. Oh, well, no. The Assyrians are a different people right, in okay. a nearby location. Just so to you are confusion. A. I'm a Syrian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, well, what, what's this change of management like for you as a Syrian? So uh, he told me this. Unless you were from a region that didn't have much of a local tradition of centralized government, the Persians were more or less happy to let people just keep doing what they were doing. They'd stick a Persian or two at the top of the system to make sure that taxes were collected regularly. They'd set up some local military garrisons, usually closer to the borders. And everyday people more or less got to do whatever they had already been doing, so long as they played nice with the imperial structure. Okay, makes sense. But yeah, Cyrus had a policy of just, you know, get on with life as long yeah. as I get my tribute and taxes, I'll be fine. And that includes freedom of religion, basically letting people worship whoever they want to worship. This is particularly well recorded because Cyrus freed the Jews from Babylonia, let them return home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Hmm. And for this particularly, he gets amazing press in the Bible as Cyrus the Messiah. Oh, wow. Okay. He's, uh, yeah, he's well regarded by the Bible, old Cyrus. In the Old to... Testament, I assume. Yes, indeed. <laughs> there was another Messiah in the other one, I recall. Exactly. And more prosaically, I also asked, okay, we're in Syria. What does my life look like as a Syrian in this period? Uh, So I asked Trevor that too. But it involves drinking tea. Yes, it does. But he doesn't mention that. The good thing about daily life is that it shouldn't be all that different from all the people around them. So if you live in the coastal parts of modern Syria, you're basically a Phoenician. And if you live in the inland parts, your lifestyle is probably not all that different from the more rural parts of Assyria and Babylon. And that means lots of farming, lots of herding. Every day you grind up some grain, either barley or wheat that you've been growing and turn it into flour to make flatbread. Or you're a herdsman and you wander around the pasture lands with a group of cattle or a group of sheep and just do your best to keep the wolves and lions away from them. And lions being a very real threat to livestock in the area at the time because we hadn't quite hunted them out of the region yet. Lions. Lions, Ryan. Lions. I was okay with kind of okay with wolves. (laughs) They threw lions into the mix. That's a much more challenging shepherding task, isn't it? Wow, that's amazing. So you got to live your life. You just bodied around as a a Syrian going, well, the management's changed, but it doesn't really affect me. The final thing I asked Trevor was, that's all very well, but what did Syria get out of this relationship then? And uh, he explained this to me. In the, especially the first half or so of the Persian Empire, their taxation and tribute system just said, you know, send us your people or send us your local resources. And for Syria, that meant in the inland and eastern half of the area where you're still along the Euphrates River, you've got lots of great farmland. So they have crops, lots of wheat, lots of barley, and they're sending that back by the ton And then in the western half, they are right on the Lebanon mountain. From those Lebanon mountains, they took a lot of cedar wood. uh, And that was considered an extremely valuable resource in the region at the time. You know, the Middle East is not a famously forested region, but you need wood to build things like ships and buildings. So those forests in the Lebanon mountains were an extremely useful resource. 
But there you go. Thanks to Trevor. That's a little bit of an insight of how it came to be part of the empire. How is it affected by being empire and how people live back then? Mm. But I know what you're thinking, Ryan. What about the extra mile? I was wondering. In the next section, Ryan, I'm going to tell you a much more extra miley story. Well, I look forward to it. Now, Ryan, before we start talking about the extra mile, we should top up our tea because that's you're not supposed to just drink it and that's done. You top it up and you go and go. So would you like a refill? I would. Is this heavily caffeinated? Because I'm literally buzzing like I'm on something. Because I don't normally drink caffeine. So is it the fact that I'm buzzing right now? I don't really know. Maybe it's placebo effect. Maybe I've just jacked you up with caffeine. I I'm not genuinely really sure. feel my fingers are, are twitching. <laughs> All right, well, I'm giving you a top up anyway. Go to do it. The flavours but... apparently kind of change as, it, as you put more, more water in and experience it through the evening. I'd love another glass, yeah. Here we go. Okay, maybe let that cool down a little. Huh? Yeah, I'm going to let that cool down. Thank you for my tea, Peter. Oh, you're very welcome. Let me Free know. refills. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, the Persian Empire was big. It was massive. It was larger than anything that had really been seen in the world at that time. It contained somewhere between 20 and 50 million people. That's a lot in those days. At its peak, there are some estimates that suggest it held half the world's population. <laughs> Wow. It covered about 2 million square miles of land. Mm. That's a lot of extra miles to worry about. How many Francis is that? Coming up for nine and a half Francis, Ryan. Nine and a half Francis. That's a huge area to try and keep control over. Exactly so. So to manage it, the empire was divided into satrapies. So a satrap was the ruler of an area. That area was a satrapy. Syria was originally lumped into one massive satrapy with Babylonia. Mm -hmm. Later on in the empire, it becomes its own satrapy of Eber-Nari, which is uh, across the water. Damascus was the capital of a satrapy. And from Damascus to Persepolis, which was the ceremonial capital of Persia, looking at nearly 2,000 kilometres, 1,200 miles. Wow, okay. Side note, when I first Googled this, it gave me 4,500 kilometres. And then I realised, I didn't notice because I wasn't really paying attention, it had actually given me the journey from Damascus to Persepolis, the restaurant on Peckham High Street. <laughs> 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 which was not correct <laughs> so it was 1200 miles instead uh, and even that was kind of just a small chunk well reasonably large but not by no means the full extent of the empire and this all needed managing all these extra miles need taking care of and a big part of how they did it was the roads and there was a thing called the royal road the royal road yeah, the royal road was really a network of roads it was created by darius the great mm -hmm. darius the first in the fifth century bc a network of roads and designed basically to enable rapid communication across the massive empire hmm. the greek historian herodotus who we've met before he talks about it as if there was just one road from susa the administrative capital to sardis in turkey but this was a because he's interested in turkey more than he's in syria and also a bit more romanticized i think but that sardis to susa journey 2600 kilometers 1600 miles that's quite incredible isn't it like i mean you just think of the effort that goes into coordinating any kind of major infrastructure project imagine doing it in those days exactly it's a, it's a massive effort and herodotus says and he he, we get a lot of our information about the Persians from Herodotus. He said that distance would take three months on foot, but with the road and the facilities, a message could go from end to end in seven to nine days. Wow. Okay. By horse or something, right? By horse. Exactly. Yeah. They had networks of people. So a, a guy called Dr. Luc Normand Tellier writes that the Persian Royal Road was the first major land structure conceived to thoroughly exploit horse transportation and relay. Relay being relay. part of okay. that. So basically along the road, there are periodic stopping stations and they'd have fresh horses there and place to stay. So your messenger would hack it out in his horse, run his horse as fast as he can to the next stopping point, hand the message to the next guy and relay the message. And that's how you can get a journey of thousands of miles in several days that's incredible because you've got a fresh horse for each section exactly herodotus using says, the same horse for nine days it's gonna tire it out he's not gonna like that no <laughs> yeah herodotus says the first rider delivers his charge to the second the second to the third and thence it passes on from hand to hand and he adds there is nothing mortal that accomplishes a course more swiftly than do these messengers by the persians skillful contrivance some pretty cool messages must have been sent down that road send nudes <laughs> <laughs> So look, this this network was so significant. One, it's it's actually fallen into the language. Every now and then, I think Karl Marx said it, and other people have used it. Said there is no royal road to success, meaning there's no easy path. So the royal road, in that respect, not in common use, but has been used as a general thing, meaning quick and easy journeys. But also, there's an echo, a ripple, if you like, in time of this royal road, because Herodotus describes the riders and the network thusly. They are stopped neither by snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor darkness from accomplishing their appointed course with all speed. I know, I've heard that. 
Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the US postal system? Exactly. The slightly amended version, the US postal system's motto is neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed round. So that today is a motto that derives from this ancient network in ancient Persia. Yeah. Notice they didn't say lions, though. Didn't. <laughs> yes, that, that is something the US Postal Service, well, I suppose they might have to contend with them. Mountain lions, <laughs> they have them. Uh, and there was one final aspect of the Royal Road, Ryan. Darius maybe didn't see coming when he built it, which, <laughs> which was as the Persian Empire weakened and a new threat emerged, Alexander of Macedonia, yeah. he invades. Using uh, the roads. In 334 <laughs> BC. And he goes, well, this is handy. <laughs> and he rolls down those roads. Oh. and basically conquers the entire Persian Empire. Yeah, imagine being at one of those staging posts and just being like, oh, hello. I, for one, welcome my new <laughs> Greek Macedonian overlords. <laughs> so yeah. that is the first version of the Extra Mile in ancient Persia and including, of course, Syria. Good. Hello and welcome to Persian Post. How may I serve you today? Well, I'd like to send a package, please. Very good. And what are you sending? Oh, just some documentation. Clay or papyrus? It's clay. All right. If you can just pop it up on the scale for me. Sure. Here you go. Okay, that's 10 kilos. And when did you want it to get there? Well, I was hoping for tomorrow, if that's possible. Oh, I'm sorry. You've missed the last rider for today. I'm afraid Colin has just left. Ah, shame. So I can offer you express post that leaves tomorrow, and that should be there by Thursday. Oh, that should be okay. And how much is that? That's 5,000 coins. Oh, that's rather more than I was hoping. Yeah, I know. It's the horse's love. Price of hay. Shocking. But I could do you the donkey relay. That'll be there Thursday week. Oh, and, and how much is that? 2,000 coins. Oh, yeah, that's still a bit much for me, I'm afraid. Well, a lot of the price is weight, so if you could get it on papyrus... I suppose I could transcribe it. Well, in that case, with papyrus on donkey relay, I can get that down to 200 coins. Oh, that sounds much better. Oh, I'll, I'll head home now and transcribe my history of people going above and beyond in Syria during the Persian Empire immediately. Oh, that sounds very important and, and probably very useful for someone in the future. So I should tell you that the donkey relay does transit through bandit country. So your package might be at risk of being lost forever. Oh, oh, well, I, I don't want that to happen. I, I want people in the future to know all of the fascinating stories and the gripping facts about this very specific time period. Oh, right. Uh, but I'm sure it'll be fine. How's it tea? Good. It's hot. Is it, is it getting more complex flavours or is it basically the same? I really like it. It's nice. It's got an earthy tone to it. It's not bad, is it? It's, yeah. I've had healthy teas before and generally don't like them. So it's very flavourful. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? And I absolutely love playing with the leaves, just scooping them around at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot it's of kind them. kind of fun. Right, Ryan, this is your final story oh. about the extra mile. This is Xenophon and the March of the 10,000. It's a great title. Yes, this is much bigger than Syria as a story, but it passes through Syria and we know it passes through Syria. So it's it's one of the few things you can really say Happened. Syria had a, had a bit in here. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's said around, well, around 355 BCE, a young man was born in Athens and his name was Xenophon. Great name. He was a philosopher and a historian, but he was also a soldier. Okay. Uh, and it's very lucky for us. He wrote a book about one particularly striking experience he had. And this book is called Anabasis. And this is the story of how Xenophon and 10,000 of his friends literally and figuratively went the extra mile. Okay. So Xenophon found himself in the service of the satrap of Lydia, a guy called Cyrus the Younger. Okay. And Cyrus the Younger decided to challenge his brother, who was called Artaxerxes II, for the throne of Persia. Sure, why not? Like you do. So Cyrus recruits 10,000 heavily armed men and he heads off, but he doesn't actually tell his men that he's planning a rebellion. He's just like, we're just going to go see my brother. And these soldiers include Xenophon. Okay. So the march heads off and they travel through Cilicia, which is eastern Turkey. They pass into Tarsus, a city in modern day Turkey, about 100 miles from the Syrian border. Uh, and about this point, the army go, there's a, there's a lot of us and we've got a lot of weapons. <laughs> uh, what's going on? And Xenophon writes, quote, refusing to advance further, the army this is, since the suspicion ripened in their minds that the expedition was in reality directed against the king. And as they insisted, they had not engaged their service for that object. Mm. We didn't sign up for this, basically. So they threatened to go no further. And look, Cyrus, he says, no, what do you mean? mean no 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 i'm just going to put down a local rebellion that's all also in unrelated news how would you like a pay rise oh really he says pay rise he gives them a pay rise it's the old pay rise go, okay let's keep going <laughs> 
<laughs> so they march on. They go to the Phoenician town of Miriandus, which is ancient Syria. Today is still Turkey, but 25 miles from the border of modern Syria. They keep marching to a town called Thapsacus, which is in modern Syria. So they're definitely in Syria. And it's mm. in Thapsacus that Cyrus says to the soldiers, so uh, yeah, we're going to attack my brother. <laughs> <laughs> The soldiers are outraged, although they kind of surprise. Suspected. What <laughs> a shock! They kind of knew this all along, but they they say, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're expecting us to go this extra mile and rebel against the king." Well, that's shocking. Unless you give us more money, <laughs> <laughs> and Cyrus says, "Okay, I'll give you a bonus as well as your pay rise." And then everyone's like, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Let's go. Let's let's do this. So they march on. They follow the the river Euphrates, pass out of Syria into Iraq. As today, they head towards Babylonia, where they expect to meet the forces of Artaxerxes. Right, the mercenaries get a bit agitated agitated again and they're like how are we going to get paid and cyrus reminds them quite how big this persian empire that he will eventually own is and he says quote on the whole my fear is not that i may have enough to give each of my friends but lest i may not have friends enough on whom to bestow what i have to give and to each of you hellenes hellenes being greek people i will give a crown of gold crown of gold another big bonus Okay. Everyone settles down. Nothing like promise of money to keep you moving. Everyone wants a crown. Exactly. So then finally, again, this is a quote, Hategias, a Persian, a trusty member of Cyrus's personal staff, came galloping up at full speed on his horse, which was bathed in sweat. And to everyone he met, he shouted in Greek and Persian, as fast as he could ejaculate the words, the king is advancing with a large army ready for battle. Dun, Whoa. dun, dun. The battle commenced. The Greeks do pretty well. They're, they're known as hoplites. They're known for having bronze armor. So they're pretty heavily armored. And the enemy generally is supposedly not so well armoured so they, they're doing well they're winning the battle unfortunately on the other side of the battle Cyrus the Younger cops a javelin in the face <laughs> in the face <laughs> in the face oh. quote someone struck him with a javelin under the eye severely yeah that would do it yeah I'm not sure a javelin in the eye is ever less than severe <laughs> if I'm honest but that's what happened and just like that the king pretender was dead do you think he meant to throw it in his face or do you think it was an accident and then he had to oh, yeah meant yep, to do that yep, that was I was going for that I was going for the <laughs> other eye <laughs> So now the Greeks are in a tough spot. They beat back Artaxerxes and they've won their part of the battle. But the whole point of the exercise is, is moot. The guy's dead. They're not, he's not going to become king now. So they're in a bit of a tricky spot. They've won, but the enemy are just over there. Cyrus the Young is dead. He's not going to become king now. They've failed, basically, but they're also thousands of miles from mm. home in enemy territory. So they go, ooh, awkward. So the king offers them a truce. He says, look, if you march home, don't pillage, just pay for stuff and we'll feed you on the way. We'll let you go. And they go, all right, that sounds reasonable. That does sound reasonable. So a guy called Tissaphernes, the king's rep, comes along and they set out for home. Now, along the way, Greeks and Persians, things are tense. They're like, oh, oh yeah. They're, they're just recently killing each other. So mm. It doesn't make for good travel companionship, I would imagine. There's nervousness that the, actually this truce is just to get the Persians to get themselves together for another attack. Did uh, that guy get his um, spear back? Uh, I would like, imagine. Is there an awkward conversation where they're like, can I, can uh, I, I just, <laughs> can I just get this? <laughs> <laughs> just that. So I'll... Uh... <laughs> Okay, so these guys haven't got much choice. They just they start going. They go up through Opis, a city near Baghdad. Uh, eventually, a Spartan named Cleartus decides to trust Tissaphernes, who explains, basically, I would have killed you by now if I, if I wanted to. He says, why, when we had it in our power to destroy you, did we not proceed to do it? Mm. Know well that the cause of this was nothing less than my passion to prove myself faithful to the Hellenes. So, Cleartus thinks, all right, fair enough. Tissaphernes says, let's have a nice dinner. So, quote, five generals and 20 captains, accompanied by about 200 of the other soldiers, they, end of quote, go along for this dinner. Yeah, don't trust it. Yeah, at dinner, on a secret signal, all the Greek soldiers were murdered and the generals were seized and imprisoned to be sent to the king where they are also subsequently executed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone was killed? Uh, no, these are just the people who went for dinner. So a couple of hundred people, but all of the leaders. Yeah. So there was a bunch of people sat there being like, wait, how come they get to go for dinner? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like, oh, and then man, the next day. <laughs> here I am with my pot noodle and these guys are living it up over there. <laughs> then in the Greek camp, they're going, oh, that's a lot of noise and fuss over in the dinner area. <laughs> they sound like they're having a whale of a time. <laughs> exactly. But then in an act that I'm going to describe as going the extra mile for his comrades and a quote, Nicarchus the Arcadian came tearing along for bare life with a wound in the belly and clutching his protruding entrails with his hands. No. He told them all the that had happened <laughs> oh clutching your entrails yeah holding that in so he says guys it wasn't a great dinner I'll be honest dessert was murder <laughs> 
<laughs> so now it's really on. The Greeks are like, well, we're not going to get an escort now. So they bail. They go, we've still got over a thousand miles to go. Stuff it. We're going to go. So all the leaders have been killed, though. So they're getting a bit depressed. But fortunately, an amazing leader steps forward. He gives a brilliantly amazing speech. Everyone loves the speech. And at the end, they made this incredible guy one of their leaders of the group. And everybody stood and everybody clapped. <laughs> that man's name was Xenophon. Xenophon. <laughs> In Xenophon's book. <laughs> really? Oh, I see. <laughs> Okay. Maybe bigged himself up a little in this section, but uh, actually a whole new set of leaders are ele elected and Xenophon was pretty clear about who the coolest of these leaders was. Yeah. Go Xenophon. <laughs> so they're going to have to give it everything. They, they're going to go the extra mile or the extra thousands of miles in this case. So they set off, they make a run for it. They're pretty soon attacked by a group called the Mithridates. They escape them. They keep going. They go past a city called Mespila, which is in Nineveh, near Mosul, Iraq. Tissaphernes shows up again with a force. They start skirmishing the Greeks. Slings and arrows are coming in. Greeks keep marching constantly harassed by the slings and arrows of Tissaphernes troops they keep marching everywhere they go they're being harried by the enemy but also all the time they're learning they realize their phalanx can't hold position very well on narrower roads so they develop new formations they realize they've got no slings or bows so they keep getting just pestered with these people so they develop archers and slingers into their ranks they just keep going they can follow the river tigris they go up into the zagros mountains in the north it's tough going. It's hard going. The weather turns against them. You're in a mountain. It starts to snow, which obviously you don't think of that when you think about the Middle East, but they're in snowy mountain area. Here's another quote. If they went to sleep with the sandals on, the thong worked into the feet and the sandals were frozen fast to them. Oh, shoes were literally freezing to their feet. They keep fighting their, um, they fight both Tissaphernes and his troops, but also every time they reach a new area, turns out a lot of places don't like 10,000 heavily armed men arriving in their land. So they get bothered by everyone, basically. And they, they just keep going, essentially. At one point, this is just a total aside, but I thought it was interesting. They eat some honey. Oh, it's a nice story. Nice enough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they go, quote, quite off their heads and suffered from vomiting and diarrhea with a total inability to stand steady on their legs. A small dose produced a condition not unlike violent drunkenness, a large one, an attack very like a fit of madness. And some dropped down apparently at death's door. They overdosed on honey. This is this is a thing called, I didn't know about this until I read that, mad honey. Right. Is this is a psychedelic? Delic honey. Mad, I've heard of this. Mad yeah. honey is a thing, and yeah, yeah. I think it is the same thing. A small spoonful will give you tingly, lightheaded, maybe give you hallucinations, euphoria. A lot of it, vomiting, diarrhea, and seizures. So mm. maybe stick to the first spoon. What is actually behind this is it's a honey contaminated with grayanotoxins, which are found in rhododendron plants. So the bees pick up the toxin from the plants and it gets into their honey. Right. And that makes mad honey. Christopher Robin definitely had mad honey one day and <laughs> had this massive fantasy world appear in front of I am absolutely certain you're right there. <laughs> anyway, bit of an aside, but I thought Mad Honey was interesting. I love it. So they recover from the Mad Honey episode. They keep going, they keep marching, they keep fighting, they keep fighting, they keep marching. Till finally, quote, they could hear the soldiers shouting and passing on the joyful word, the sea, the sea. Yay. They keep going. They arrive at a place called Trabzon, a Hellenic city. So Greek people. So there were Greek people all in Turkey and Anatolia at that time. And things lighten up then. They have a gymnastic contest. <laughs> and yeah. uh, more or less the end is in site now now this isn't a novel so there isn't a and then they go through the gates of home it, it kind of fizzles out a little bit forces oh. fragment they go from place to place but the reality is they make it back to greek territory xenophon turns the army over to a new commander and they effectively did make it home they marched literally thousands of miles they lost thousands of comrades on the way they kind of picked up people and lost them as well on the way as mm. well but they made it back to greece as for xenophon himself he went on to fight in other campaigns uh, but eventually he retired to his estate on the peloponnese that's kind of bulgy bit of islandy bit sticking out at the bottom of Greece and he lived there for 20 years and then he moved to Corinth in the end where he lived until his death in 354 BCE at the age of about 84 or 85. That's quite a life well lived isn't it? That guy did a lot. Now I'm sure Xenophon thought he'd done a great job but unwittingly he'd also gone an, another extra mile for us just by writing his book because it gives us some insights into the area that we wouldn't have had otherwise and historians including our friend Trevor are grateful for this to this day uh, as he explains. It's this very valuable source to the study of the Persian Empire because they've got all these little escapades in these parts of the empire we never hear anything else about. You know, nobody's nobody else is trekking through the Caucasus Mountains trying to learn about the local customs in Armenia because they're treacherous mountains. And the primary theme that Xenophon keeps bringing up is how much they suck to be in and how the Persians don't even control a lot of the mountainous tribes and they just fight with each other in their own little fortresses all the time. But, it, you know, it's this great source of ethnography for these otherwise undocumented people. The new Ford Xenophon. Equipped 
for a Spartan. Tires to tackle the toughest terrain. From desert dust to craggy cliffs. The engine with the heart of a warrior. A chassis built from Syrian steel. Toughened to withstand the harshest of weathers. From Babylonia to Anatolia. 1,000 miles on a single tank. The new Ford Xenophon. Test drive today and ride like a hero. Oh, that's just what I need for the school run. So there you have it, the extra mile, metaphorical, literal, in and, I'll admit, around Assyria uh, during the Persian Empire. Amazing, Pete. That was fantastic. How about that? And uh, congratulations for finding Trevor. The guy really knows a lot about the Persian Empire. <laughs> I'll say that for him. And in fact, I would like to give Trevor the last word. Thank you so much for having me. As I said at the beginning, I'm Trevor Cully. I host the History of Persia podcast, which you can probably find most easily just by typing it into the search bar of wherever you're listening right now. But if you want to find all of the details and links and things, you can find me at historyofpersiapodcast.com or at History of Persia on Twitter and Facebook and all of those things. So yeah, it was really helpful to have Trevor to cover that difficult, we don't know anything <laughs> element. Yeah. Uh, so very grateful for that. That was amazing. Uh, one quick question before we wrap this up. Where's my mad honey? I want to try some. <laughs> Can you buy it? I don't know, actually. It didn't occur to me because I didn't really want to poison you. But now I do. I'm going to see if I can get some for the verdict. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, look, Peter, congratulations. Uh, I thought that was going to be super easy, but it, it appears n n not quite so. And you had to you know, struggle a little bit to sort of work around that. And I think you've done marvellously to uh, keep it within the uh, the time period and the topic. Yeah, I think I it's did, amazing. I did start with a lot of unwarranted smugness, which was soon wiped away. <laughs> <laughs> but never mind, we pulled it out of the bag, I think. You did, my friend. Congratulations. And thank you for my lovely uh, straw. But here we are, Peter, towards the end of the episode, and therefore we must us late. What will it be? What will it be? Let's right. pull it out. Okay, Ryan, your country is... Maldives. The Maldives. Indeed. How exciting. All I can think of is beach shacks and luxury coconut drinks. White sand and stuff. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Maldives. A trip to the Maldives. Woohoo! All right, your time period. Are you ready? I am. It's the high Middle Ages. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you're not wondering what that is exactly, but for our listeners at home, that's 1000 to 1250 CE. In the Maldives. In the Maldives. Do you, right. Do you remember when they were doing all those things? <laughs> With the coconuts. Oh. Oh, okay. Maldives in, in the year 1000. Right. right. Maybe a topic will make it easy. There'll be loads of stuff written down, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Your topic. Are you sitting down? Be coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> the topic is it's religion oh okay i don't okay. know what to think about that okay yeah i'll be honest pete i'm nervous about this one there's bound to be religion if there were people there yeah was there anyone there and did they write anything down those are your two main questions i think <laughs> the question is if there was no one there how the heck does religion fit in well i guess i'll have to find out we'll all find out soon enough oh you lordy before us. <laughs> can you see the sweat on my brow i see a certain tenseness yeah I'm, 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 I'm a bit stressed i'm a bit stressed it'll be fine oh, it'll be fine it'll be fine it'll be fine it'll probably be fine right it's always been fine so far Okay, well, look, there you go. That was the show for this week. So thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can do that. You can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Brian at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Like Carrie, who contacted us on LinkedIn to uh, tell us that yesterday I asked my 11-year-old son whether he wanted to listen to Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins podcast or History Happened Everywhere on our long car journey. And he replied, H-H-E, of course. I love me some Pete and Ryan. Yeah, suck it, Stephen Fry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. We're huge fans, she says. 
How about that? That's excellent. I'm Better than Stephen Fry. Yeah, Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if you are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post extra content. So we'll post a picture of the masasa, the little filtery spoons, and the mamul biscuits, links to Trevor's podcast, maybe some extra facts that we find. And we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And a huge thanks to Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Oh, what are you up to? Uh, I'm on Twitter right now. Oh, are you posting the pics from the show and everything? What? No, no, I'm trolling. I'm a troll now. What? Yeah, it's great. Everyone's doing it. But, Ryan, that's terrible. You can't go trolling people, going around saying nasty things. Oh, uh, I think I can. But our whole show is about positivity. It's about bringing people together. It's, it's supposed to be fun. Trolling is fun. It's hilarious. What have you been writing? Move over, let me see. What's this? I love your show. It's so good and cool and really entertaining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for another podcast. Good, right? I bet they hate that. Well, this one's great tweet, really funny, made me lol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zing. But, but Ryan, these, these are... These are nice. What? No, 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 you're just not reading it right. Listen, I love your show. It's so good and cool and really entertaining. Oh, uh, right, right, I get it now. Great tweet. Really funny. Made me lol. Smiley face. But Ryan, don't you see what you're doing is... Actually, you know what? Just keep trolling, Ryan. I knew you'd get it. Right. At Greg Jenner... You're so handsome and talented. You're dead to me. (laughs) And post. Nailed it. What would you have done had you have not contacted Trevor? Would it just be me saying um, the the thing that I might have done? Um, that the the um, and I've forgotten the names off the what do you call them? I would have just said they were in the battle, and I would have probably done a bit about that battle instead. Okay, yeah, cool, man.